0: welcome to the power of perspective podcast with your host Stephen. today we have my friend george on to talk about weapons and war
1: what would you say the
0: the impact of war has been
1: i honestly feel and a lot of people might disagree with me but i do feel that in one way or another war has basically shaped almost the entirety of human history developments and innovation um, if you take for example not long ago we were just figuring out hey if we put an engine underneath this giant kite, we can fly and then 60 years later we've got someone on the moon Um, and just like that every other aspect it starts off relatively innocuous and then sooner or later somehow it gets involved in some conflict or other And uh, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention and people wind up using things in ways they would never have imagined before just because it's what they had at hand. Do you think we're going to see more wars? Oh yes. Um, Or is that just a thing you have forgotten past? No, 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 no. To paraphrase uh, an author I enjoy, people will stop fighting shortly before they stop procreating and just after they stop drinking. So, no, we will always have war in one form or another. Um, I long for a day where it's not actual people fighting, but even that is, I think, a pipe dream because uh, even at its most base level, people will always want things other people have. And when the rules don't allow them to get that yeah, they'll break the rules and that will cause bigger conflicts as the people that were, hang on you can't do that and then the first guy says of course of course I can and the other one says well I'm going to stop you and the first one says you and what army and sure enough someone will bring along an army
0: the um, consequences of the, the ceasefire though surely that's got, of the nuclear arms is that going to hold off war
1: or is that just a, a hopeful thought I feel the best way I uh, sort summed up when it comes to nuclear arms as well as Weapon tech in general—we're uh, seeing a huge resurgence in armored warfare these days. With people realizing, hang on, tanks are just as awesome as they used to be. But also, adding new things that were never around before, like drones doing amazing things in modern combat. Uh, we're finding that some of the extremely high-tech solutions we had not too long ago are these days being foiled by relatively simple things. There. The problem is that both sides inevitably think, okay, but if I look strong enough and I've got the best toys and the best soldiers, then no one will want to mess with me. And uh, the other side, well, okay, so that guy's looking really, really strong. I need to be just as strong or he can take anything from me he wants. And then both sides wind up having all these incredible dangerous things and strong soldiers ready to do what they get told. And eventually someone's got, but hang on, we've got this thing and we want that thing over there. So why? not just try and take it. That's how the First World War started and the way that got uh, ended led directly to the Second World War and uh, these days again we've got one side saying but I said this and the other one side uh, saying yes but you also said that the first one saying yes but ignore that but and uh, we never actually said it from what I understand how the whole Russia-Ukraine thing started. I didn't look at it too deeply because everything these days is propaganda anyway. Yeah,
0: It's uh, hard to trust also the media and it's just
1: overwhelming you know? it's yeah. it's everywhere so basically I look at the funny pictures and the interesting tech and things they use anything that actually gets stated this happened or that side did that I'll just take it with a large amount of salt yeah. but, uh, to quote uh, Rowan Atkinson in uh, Black Adder goes forth when it comes to war uh, particularly the idea of projecting enough strength to avoid conflict is there's only one problem with that idea and that is that it is absolutely bogus. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's just
0: um, um,
1: an inevitability of
0: the human condition.
1: Yes, I feel that humans by their nature are not necessarily violent, but we are competitive by nature. Uh, It's a dichotomy, I think we, in my opinion, I could be wrong about this, but from what I've read and observed, humans simultaneously want to work together, but they also want to work together in a group to get what they want from the group, people who aren't in their group. Um, It's always going to be us versus them, as my favorite author, Pratchett put it when you've got multiple races involved fantasy things then it stops being Ebony and Ivory because Ebony and Ivory are ganging up against Green <laughs> Early Wars what did that look like? Long ago Wars came down to to put it very crudely pointy sticks <laughs> and uh, Sounds so innocent when you put it that way You'd think so but uh, the problem is when you've got uh, pieces of sharpened metal on sticks and people are literally just stabbing each other in massive numbers. Uh, the only good thing about the war back then is they had such small armies because there were no such thing as an army. Uh, if one king decided he wanted that source of salt from the other king, he had his vassals bring up all their serfs. Basically, at the end of the day, you had a lot of very rich men standing at the back with their sons and cousins and such, leading the poor guys with sticks and shields if they're lucky to slaughter to the other side, sons and poor people with sticks and shields. Yes. and uh, the side where the most people left over got to claim the salts or mine or trade route what have you eventually the Chinese tried to invent immortality and instead figured out that if you add saltpeter, sulfur and charcoal together you've got something that goes makes a lot of gas us Europeans being the tightness group we are we immediately think hang on if we can make a lot of gas in a small area we can throw rocks really fast <laughs> that's where Canon started and today we've got really complex forms of powders and uh, not even powders that grains and uh, rods and things these days uh, to make guns and we've got missiles and such but at the end of the day it all boils down to uh, one very large important group of people wants something that another important group of people has. They will use the poor people they can suck into doing it to get it from them. Contrasted to that of course the thing that one group wants is for the other group to not have the right to kill people just because of where they're from or yes. you've got one group who's like okay so we We've got, just got suck it, in, uh, suck it into this thing, so we'll give other side of the war a bunch of weapons, as what well as happened in the Second World War, and then it starts getting out what the other side is doing, and they're like, okay, now hang on, we just, we're gonna ramp this up, we're gonna, you guys don't have to pay us now. Here's all the tanks and airplanes you need. Here's a bunch yeah. of guns. We'll look the other way if some of our boys go over there to join you fighting. That happened in the First World War as well, but the First War was much more political than the Second. I think it starts getting out the details and such what happened and you've you've got to put it like this even to this day if certain people in the Netherlands or in Belgium hear a Canadian accent, they will immediately be happy to hear it and be willing to buy that guy a beer, even though that guy may not know why. But he has an uncle or a grandfather who was there when the Low Countries were liberated from Germany. The people who were around then and their children still remember back when a Canadian paratrooper handed off his sea ration and the mother had to explain to her daughter what chocolate was because she'd never seen something like that before.
0: it's amazing like the, the foothold, the, the influence these events can have on future generations, you know? As you're saying, what one man does in times of war and desperation can impact the whole viewpoint of one group on another, right? It
1: does, and it carries over in ways people don't even realize. For example, my grandparents were in the Netherlands back in the 1940s, so when they came to South Africa, they heard a whole different group of people saying the same things they used to hear Germans saying about another group of people. and my grandfather just was not having it so my father never got invited to certain things but uh, on the other hand too, when the call came if the government says you need to sign up you sign up so he was a medic and he was in the navy and he did his duty same to the conscientious objectors back in the second world war and after uh, everyone's seen well I hope everyone's seen the movie Axel Ridge it's a brilliant f- not to mention that the guy that's being portrayed was even more amazing in real life than he is in the movie, he didn't fire a single bullet. He just saw horrible things happening and staying within his beliefs he went on and did his duty. and He saved lives at the risk of his own and I think that is what if you can call it that positive side of war is is it brings out the ugly people but it also brings out the heroes in all of us that we don't even realize are there until we get pushed into a corner and uh, that part of us that never had a reason to come out suddenly stands up and hang on, this is my job. you think
0: they can still be good in in war, in a time where, you know, people are out there doing something inherently uh, morally wrong, right? Killing each other under good intentions, maybe, but you know what I mean? It is sort of murky waters the concept
1: of is it morally right or wrong to take another life is one that people will never ever agree on I feel yes um, case in point I used to have a colleague who is as I am myself uh, very religious but we're in different denominations different viewpoints and uh, he stated that he would never be in favor of for example the death penalty because there's never a good reason to kill someone and I pointed out but the same Bible both of us read says that you must not the the government man wielding the sword because vengeance comes from the Lord and he gives that power to the government so from that point of view you could say that it's justified but on the other hand who's to say that the government is right to have the right to kill people a lot of us know that there are a lot of governments in the world who should not have the right to kill people because yes exactly who do you give the power to right exactly (laughs) who do you trust for that power and who watches the uh, watchmen, as they say but uh, on the other hand I do feel personally, that no matter your views on the subject, you still have to do your duty. Um, I very firmly believe in my own particular concept of honor. You are called by the government to serve. You serve. If you find it objectionable to kill people, you will find other ways to serve. Uh, my father was in electronic warfare and he was a medic. He never fired at people in anger. He knows how. Um, if you were to now, decades later, wake him up at two in the morning and demanded of him, he will still recite the serial number of his his uh, FNFAL battle rifle to you because he had to know that serial number (laughs) he never got to shoot it at someone but things change as those things influence the future going on he winds up in a situation where he hears someone say something regarding I think it was uh, the war and he responded in Russian and they assumed he's a Russian and was immediately opposed to him because if you're a Russian I want nothing to do with you he explained to him this and I'm not a Russian I'm Dutch I learned Russian during the Cold War so that I could pass information that I heard over uh, radios and such to NATO's allies. But people are still by a current war being shaped. This side is according to what we feel good. That side is bad. And then another person shaped by a previous war acts on things he just—that's That's what he's always done. The conflict of viewpoints then creates uh, interesting scenarios where different people react to the same thing differently. And both sides feel they're right. And sometimes both sides are right because uh, just because w- one side is different from you and they have a valid point does not mean either of you are either right or wrong
0: yeah so in times of war there are ethical and moral issues related to the weapons used the nature of them this is just all good as long as you're getting them killed it doesn't matter how
1: the man who invented the first real machine gun ira Maxon. Yeah. Uh, he was an inventor and he was struggling and someone said to him if you want to make money either do do something no one else can. Do something better than they, uh, anyone else can. Or find a way to let Europeans kill each other faster. And uh, he went by the latter and he made the first machine gun. From an engineering point of view, the Maxim gun is a thing of beauty. Um, no one had ever thought of using the recoil from a rifle to reload it before. The machining to make the parts that make it go are incredible pieces of engineering. You can't just go into your garage and make an accent, every part carefully fits together and makes a whole machine that is incredible, but also incredibly destructive millions of people die to those things and that is where the problem comes where people refer to people as me like gun nuts yes I do enjoy and appreciate the engineering behind them but firearms cannons aircraft uh, and stuff like that they as interesting and amazing as they are they are horrible in their potential I have seen photographs of the Battle of the Somme literal heel sized stacks of spent artillery casings which means they look like bullet shell casings, large enough that you can fit your entire arm in them, stacked as high as three people, all for one battle, where the total change in ownership was a few feet of land. But basically, it comes down to the size. What's the uh, song? What's the price of a mile? All those people died in horrible, brutal ways. Sometimes gas was used for the first yeah. time in the first World War. You could say that it was for no good point, and it was absolutely horrible.
0: At what point can you consider? Your- war justified you know is, is there a breaking point fighting over you know spare change it's where is the limit in this i do
1: not ever feel that war is justified however i do feel that justified actions can lead to war. a very good example of this would be the second world war where at the start it was mostly political and in a way vengeance getting back for the Versailles treaty at the end of the first world war and then the rhetoric that the the people in charge of Germany used to take over their country because that's the thing that people need to remember um, as was said in the movie Captain America the first country that the Nazis invaded was Germany the rhetoric they needed a scapegoat and they needed a hero they found a group that a lot of people to this day do not like for reasons I do not understand in the slightest and they made the German people their own heroes, and that enabled them to push a lot of otherwise decent people into doing horrible things. But it started off with just, we're going to take this land that was taken away from us in the first place, and England and France were like, we just lost millions of people, we're not going to fight another war, okay, fine, you can have the land, just let's leave it there. And then, okay, but now we're going to do this. And they're like, you really do not want a war, but we will start one if you go further from here. And then of course, it escalated, and they started in invading the low countries and France and it had to be a war but at that point on the Allied side it was I want to say almost justified because they were defending themselves they weren't fighting the war they were fighting off an aggressor. Yeah. and then as things progressed and uh, they were just buying things from the Americans and such and then it started coming to light the horrible things that were happen- happening on the other side and then fighting back against that became a moral imperative because one group of people being able to just wipe out another is never justified and fighting against that I feel is justified but unfortunately on the scale it was happening it led to a war and uh, a whole large number of innocent people on both sides wound up dying sometimes in awful ways just because they didn't really have a choice in the matter it was go off and fight against people you've never heard of before or say you're not going to, and have your brother or dad go in your stead, or even worse, just have your mom or relative shot because you're a coward. Yeah. No, I mean it's crazy.
0: Yeah. So, do you think it was preventable the the events that unfolded in in the Second World War?
1: No. Um, Just an inevitability of the circumstance. The way uh, that uh, the situation that Germany and many of those countries were in before it started, no matter who kicked it off, a war was basically inevitable. Um, Germany was basically humiliated at the end of the First World War. They had a massive amount of things taken away from them land, resources. Uh, The German people were in the same situation that the Zimbabwean people were not too long ago, where you go to work, you get an entire wheelbarrow full of cash for your day's work and it's barely enough to buy a loaf of bread because the price of the bread increased a thousandfold from the morning when you left for work and the evening when you finished. So they had to do something and unfortunately there was only one outcome because the, the side that had won the First World War was not going to let just, just let them have it. So uh, I looked up a while back because, I mean, I'm from an African country. I'm always interested in potential ways for uh, a developing nation to improve itself faster. So I said, well, hang on, Germany turned from what was basically uh, an impoverished state to a world superpower. How did they do this? This has to be useful in other areas. No, basically, what it get boiled down to is they borrowed money from everyone around them use that money to make infrastructure projects so that people are employed again cut down unemployment and then just declare war and uh, say i'm not going to pay you back i'm fighting you i'm not going to pay back this loan that's silly and uh, the thing is interestingly while declaring <laughs> a war just to default on your loans is madness we do have some benefits there where uh, we can start seeing okay but One of the ways we can learn from this, and that's the most important thing of history, is they used infrastructure to improve the country and find people employment. Because first off, if you've got roads and airports and harbours, then suddenly, oh wait, hang on, I should go build my factory there. They've got a lot of unemployed people, so I don't have to pay very high wages. The bond is low, and uh, they've got great roads and such. I can transport my goods. And uh, suddenly you've got a country that is useful for uh, good for outside development. But uh, of course, when the same country also happens to be saying that uh, everyone who looks like this uh, is not allowed to own anything, then you've got a problem. Yes. But uh, I do feel that one, the only upside to war is that it does lead to innovation. Uh, yes. You start off with muzzle loading rifles and uh, smoothbore guns. Uh, before the First World War and uh, in the 1800s, someone figured out, hang on, if I put mercury in this acid, I get this weird crystal that makes a very large explosion when I smack it with something or drop it. And uh, that actually gets shown in the show uh, Breaking Bad. Although fulminated mercury does not explode that badly, it is still extremely un- unstable. Yeah. So they figured out, hang on, I can use this, put it in the little cap, And uh, I no longer have to use powder and flint or a piece of uh, rope that's on fire to touch off my powder and my gun. And from there, someone else eventually figured out bullets. And uh, from there, ingenuity just carries forward. From there, you've got single shot rifles and that led to bolt actions and lever actions in uh, America and such. And uh, from there, we got semi-automatic and automatic things. And uh, while those are interesting from an engineering point of view, I once uh, watched a video on an experimental weapon from, I think it was Germany, I'm not certain. Uh, the way that the gears and cams and things inside the internal parts is literally artistic in the way they laid out to take up as little space as possible and fill the available space inside this rifle so that you've got basically a semi-automatic rifle uh, in the same size as an old bolt action. And uh, that sort of ingenuity, the metallurgy that goes into making parts like that that won't wear away, uh, that transfers into other areas you've got, uh, as I mentioned earlier, from plane airplanes, we've figured out how to take them to war, and then we immediately each side needs to make the airplanes better and better than the other side so that they're faster and more fuel efficient so that they can go further and carry carry heavier loads and then from that we've got modern cargo and passenger aircraft who, that are almost as efficient as it's possible to be because we reach that pinnacle from war and now we're finding other uses for this technology we got. We went to the moon with technology that started off finding a way to take a bomb all the way from France into England. And uh, I mean, yeah. it definitely was a giant step- leap for mankind. And so the biggest
0: sort of societal changes that came through the development of, of war um, <laughs> weapons, how do we most visually see that, like living today?
1: And- the most obvious way you can see that, which a lot of people do not realize, ironically, is the fact that men these days generally have short hair. That came directly as a result of the French Revolution, where the French went uh, but trigger happy with their guillotines, and a lot of people had their heads chopped off. And uh, if you were a nobleman, uh, you obviously you had perfumed clothes, you had wigs, you had long hair and stylish clothes. And uh, when the downtrodden masses got a hold of you, uh, you were tossed in jail, and uh, in preparation to have your head chopped off, your hair was cut short so that it doesn't get in the way of the blade. And uh, then if you were eventually found innocent and you, your people spoke up for you, no, hang on, that, that guy was a good lord. He made sure we were always fed. He kept things managed. Uh, we always had water, and he didn't spend all the taxes we paid on ridiculous things. Then you? if you were lucky, you got let go. And they kept that short hair so that everyone, oh, leave that guy down. We've already tried to chop his head off and we didn't have to. And to this day, we've still got short hair on men because it became a sort of fashion or a statement. And uh, then it lost its actual meaning, the circumstances around it went away. But we kept it because it's what we got used to and uh, likewise the poor people who didn't have their heads chopped off they had short hair because i don't want to look like the people whose heads were chopping off and uh, another development from that that you see these days particularly here in southern africa uh, we've basically had the two generations before ours were all involved in some form of war or another if it's our grandparents who fought in the second world war or our parents on both sides of the so-called border war in Angola, Namibia, and uh, unrest in South Africa, you'll find out of habit, everyone just, our parents did it, we do it. You and a friend were coming up to a stop street, you stop, he's checking his side, you automatically check you, your side, No car's coming, it's all clear, and he keeps going. That's a military thing. Out of habit, if someone else is driving and they stop at an intersection, they'll do their job as gunner to check if their side of the road is clear. We yeah. do that out of habit because our parents did it. They were taught to do it. We don't even realize it's a product of war. We just think it's helpful and safe. We check our side of the car. Driver checks his side of the car. All sides are clear. We can go. It's a, like I said, it's a helpful and safe way of doing it, and it's a product of a horrible time where people did things they do not want to, did not want to, and they still feel bad about. But in some small ways. For example, I mean, the way the country is now, does it have its faults? Yes, but it's a vast improvement over what it used to be.
0: Uh, yes, I think we can attest to that. For coming from um, us being here in South Africa, um, how does how is our sort of war experience looked and the impact of that? We've had a very different sort of cultural
1: impact. I would say, in a way, the Second World War specifically, uh, even more than the First World War, started shaping uh, the culture and the world view specifically of white south africans because a large number of them went off to fight in the uh, on the allies side for the british and then another group of them refused because of what the british had done to south africa and they wound up in jail for it and uh, you've got groups there And then also on the other end, you've got the other side, the African side, who they weren't involved in this if they could help it, but a lot of them wound up being shut off to fight wars. They had no interest in shooting people they probably never heard of before, and they didn't have a choice in the matter. And then they did all these things, they did amazing heroic things, and they came back and they weren't allowed to go into the same place as the people who not too long before were prisoners they were guarding. Um, That's something we have in common with America where over in Europe you're a hero and you come back home and suddenly you're not allowed to use that bathroom. You have to use this one over here, which is absurd if you ask me. And uh, Not quite a hero's welcome, is it? Not at all. And it's not fair, if you put it that way. I mean, um, they did their duty. A lot of people like to cite the Battle of Blood River from centuries ago as a huge thing for... Uh, Afrikaans people, but what they do not realize is more than half of the people who fought on the same side in that battle were not Europeans. They were people, uh, Africans who were joined up, um, they were not slaves, they were workers, and in a way I want to say not quite equals, but they weren't slaves, they weren't second-class people, they were going along, they were helping set up uh, homesteads and such, and they also helped fight off the uh, attackers. Um, who, from their point of view, had a valid reason for attacking. And uh, it's all a very interesting situation how that battle turned out, how it did. A uh, combination of uh, sheer luck, weather, and superstition on both sides. but uh, Or religion, depending on how you look at it. Um, and uh, it's the same to this day. You had people on both sides, one side being taught from a very young age, um, those people look different from us, we need to be in charge because they're going to ruin things. And from that pair of lenses, they're going to see, still going to see things today. That's why the country looks the way it does. But on the other side, you've got people like my grandparents, my parents fought against this sort of thing. We need to stay in charge to make sure that we're never in that position again. And. Uh, You can even make an argument to say that's why the state of corruption and such is the way it is, because it started up with, in my culture, if I am well off, it means that the people in positions below me are also well off, it reflects on them. And it's also a historic thing where back then, we had little, we lived in shacks, we did not have a lot to eat. So now that we're in charge, we have to make sure that never happens to us again, and we have to get what we can. I don't think it's right, but it is a product of the times. And uh, the only way we can move forward, I feel, is if we can reconcile that thing, those viewpoints, to find the good on both sides and uh, find a way of, again, as with all the other things we've done in the past, find the useful parts of a war that forced us to innovate or forced us to change and use that change to do things that we want to make, take forward to improve it for all of us. These people that you know, fought in war and they come back, um,
0: they, it has a detrimental impact on them, right? We've heard stories of PTSD and struggles and not being able to readapt to civilization. And
1: so what are some classic examples of this? Uh, if you go back far enough, you will find records of something similar to post-traumatic stress almost everywhere. I recently uh, watched a documentary about an American Medal of Honor uh, recipient who's got a large campaign going that I feel is a good one. He wants to remove the D from PTSD because it's not a disorder. It's a part of all of us. Humans are not designed or we're not built to stay the same after we see or do or experience horrible things. And uh, the problem there is sometimes we get forced into those situations. Uh, Our country goes to war. We get called up and uh, they break us down from who we used to be and build us up into soldiers, able to fight and kill for our country. And uh, we never get taught how to come back from that. That becomes who we are, because that's what we were built into. And then you have a man coming back. Uh, I knew a gentleman in Botswana. He, When he was young, he lost a long-term relationship because he was driving in town with his girlfriend of the time. And someone threw a bunch of firecrackers on a string and uh, instinctively he grabbed his girlfriend, shoved it down underneath him under the dashboard of the car, got on top of her and without looking put his foot down on the gas and sped away because it sounded like a machine gun that's what he was trying he had to protect her and get up she was traumatized by this ordeal because she was suddenly violently grabbed out of his seat shoved into a thing he physically climbs on top of her and starts speeding off and crashes the car into a lamppost she doesn't know what goes on but she doesn't want to be with someone like that and it's a conflicting point where both of them reacted based on what they knew and it was never going to work out without a lot of communication and understanding before then and none of us none of them were taught to come back home but none of us were taught how to accept soldiers back into our lives either and uh, you get people who uh, a friend of mine he still sometimes remembers things that he saw had to do and he gets very quiet Uh, he loves the guns he used he loves cannons he wishes he was in the artillery he loves the tech behind it but the human side of war is something he does not want to see again And that shapes uh, as a teacher um, what he teaches people and how he teaches subjects. And uh, I was fortunate enough, he was my English teacher. He taught me poetry about war and he put a perspective on it even when he was just reciting the poem or explaining the themes behind it. Uh, for myself I could see the, the way some of those things resonated within him and uh, it had an impact and to this day I still find some of those poems very moving and very important and uh, much like when he taught history although unfortunately i would never had him in history class it's important to learn the why and the when and how of things much more than the who and the when because that's what shaped things um, you wind up with people coming back with some brilliant ideas. And uh, they sh- they've they got so much to offer. And if they're not allowed to, they start spiraling because you went through all this, you learned these things, you've got ingrained habits and behavior that you were trained to do. And now you're stuck in a place where you don't fit anymore. Uh, you're driving your kids to school and your neighbor happened to have left these trash bags outside on the driveway. And you almost crash by going into oncoming traffic just because you spotted those bags out of the corner of your eyes. And you're trained to identify that as a possible uh, explosive device up in the Middle East. And uh, your kids are traumatized because daddy almost made a crash. And uh, you're feeling horrible because I almost made a crash with my kids in the car. And I don't know why I did that from a freaking crash bag.
0: No, no, I mean you must like, almost feel embarrassed, right? It's, like, it's so ingrained into you, but when it happens in this like, new environment it like, must really throw you off. Um, how, do, how do we um, change the way that we send off soldiers to war and prepare them so that we don't have this horrible sort of impact on society? Like, What in the philosophy and, and um, you know, way of doing it needs to change
1: One of the things I recently heard a drill sergeant uh, well not a drill sergeant but a former drill sergeant explain was what they were doing is they were they started panels of both people who train soldiers and also people who used to be soldiers and how can we improve the situation and I do feel that it's something that we will never find an answer for but we can keep improving things and one of the things they he said was they are getting rid of of the idea of breaking people down to pull them into soldiers. Instead, what they want to do is focus on teaching them skills and then making them teams. So that instead of building the broken pieces of people into soldiers, you take the people that were there to begin with, and you just add teamwork and skills on top of that. That won't obviously work perfectly, because you've still got people who are going into horrible situations, and they have to come back from that. But on the other hand, we have also making great strides in, I don't want to say normalizing, but we're growing more acceptive of the fact that mental issues and struggles are just as real as physical ones. Um, it's equally valid to go to a doctor because the thought of going to your manager gives you a panic attack, as it is of going to the doctor because when it gets too hot outside, you get a nosebleed. Um, you don't have much of a fa- uh, influence on either of those things, but they need to be fixed so you need to find out why it happens do you have a problem with the vein or in your nose are you short on vitamin k is the problem the manager or is it a past experience that you're stuck on that this manager just happens to be mind you of without you realizing it and uh, i feel if we can keep moving forwards and accepting that we don't always know the best way of doing something but if we need to be accepting of other people who might have different ideas so that their thoughts can be added to ours, um, much like different parts can change an old, a rusty bolt-action rifle into a modern automatic one to improve the works. In yeah. concept, we've still got people going in, you've still got bullets going in, but the machinery of it and the results start changing based on what you put in.
0: Yeah, now we've become better at identifying the problem and sort of understanding the impact of these things. You know, um, what's nice, in, in, in more recent developments, in um, is that we are better able to treat uh, PTSD or just PTSD, as you as you've said, through um, psychedelics have sort of been f- finally um, their untapped potential sort of used in a, a more general accepted way to treat PTSD. It's used in therapy as an aid and. We've, for the first time in a long time, sort of made definitive steps in being able to actively, you know, rehabilitate these people. Um, until that point, you know, people just going back and uh, to broken homes. Um, so yeah, the the awareness is coming. The finally have a good way to treat this. But at the same time, you want to. Um, preactively solve the problem rather than just trying to pick
1: up the pieces. That's true, yeah. Being proactive is very important. And the thing to remember is, even underneath the earth, those people also have good sides, they've got some good memories. Um, you cannot just combine, oh no, you went to war, everything was horrible. Uh, it's human nature. No matter what we do, as Oscar Wilde said, a man can get used to almost anything. You have a guy who He gets told, right, this is your manifest, you're taking this truck, you're going off to get watermelons. And the manifest says you're getting 23 watermelons, right? And you're counting Mm. the watermelons going into your truck, and you count 24 watermelons, but they sign off on 23 watermelons. So you have got a manifest for 23 watermelons. The guy who supplied them signed off, he gave you 23 watermelons, but what you've actually got are 24 watermelons. So, you stop halfway, get out your trusty bayonet or knife, and uh, one of those watermelons can legally disappear. So, you and your po- uh, friend who went off on the truck, sitting there, having a nice picnic. Along comes the sergeant. is like, how dare you steal that watermelon? I'll have you up, drags you up in front of the major, and uh, he stole a watermelon, I was most disgusted, sir. And the major's like, very well, what have you got to say to yourself? Well, sir, Uh, We have a manifest for 23 watermelons. Is that right, Corporal? Yes, sir. And uh, we unloaded 23 watermelons. Is that right? Yes, but... So he didn't steal a watermelon. No, I see. Saw him eat the watermelon. So did we not receive 23 watermelons? No, we did, but... And that's the sort of funny anecdotes that years and decades later stick with them. And uh, it's a sort of... It shows that the resiliency of the human soul where despite all the other horrible things you saw and heard and that happened to your friends, uh, you can still hold on to those funny little bits, like the time you were told to wait for uh, permission to watch a training film, and there's half a table with one ping pong paddle, but no net and no ball, and told you're not allowed to play ping-pong. So you immediately start making popping noises with your mouth the moment the uh, instructor is outside the room just to mess with them. Uh, yeah. We find levity in almost any situation we can because that's what we, makes us human. Uh, we'll make conflict whenever we can, but we'll do it as a group and we'll stick together as a group. And I think one of the big things towards finding a way of reducing conflict would be a way of finding method, I think, of making people enlarge their groups to include more people, instead of us just being us few against them few, making it a large number of us against a large number of them. And then hopefully eventually without resorting to war, making it, it's just all of us competing together to see who can be the best. So instead of shooting at each other to take a piece of land, it's just, I need to do really good in this event, because then I can get the medal and I can get sports sponsorships and then I can get a better house for my family. Or if I write really well and I can fix this issue I have of messing up multiple uh, times and uh, tenses in a single sentence, I can maybe start publishing this and I can make a living telling stories like I want instead of having to go to a nine to five job every day.
0: Yes, Uh, on the the stories um, the only uh, favorite War stories? My
1: favorites, I would put them into two things. Um, My favorite, if I can call it that horrible story, is uh, people today know it as Auschwitz, but it's in Poland. It used to be known as Auschwitz. There was a Russian fort there, and uh, it got attacked by the Germans in the First World War, and uh, the Germans vastly outnumbered them, but just in case to be on the safe side, they waited for the wind to change and they release chlorine gas, which is a horrible, horrible way to go. And uh, when they had done that sufficiently, and the wind started shifting, they switched uh, off their canisters. And uh, just as the gas ended, the Russians made a counter charge into machine gun fire, into the uh, Germans and Austrians. And the soldiers were shocked. They were absolutely, they literally gave up and ran away because what looked like dead men were charging them. Uh, Russians and Poles who literally had skin falling off and burns all across the exposed bodies, but they were defending their fortress, so they charged. And uh, that sort of, uh, this is my duty, we were told to hold this place, so no matter what, we will hold this place. That sort of enduring spirit really spoke to me. And uh, on the other hand, I've got some amusing anecdotes I've read and heard of time. Um, one of my favorite ones, I'm a huge fan of tanks and tank warfare. And uh, there was a music anecdote of uh, along the topic of uh, British officers just do not run. It's not what they do. It's not done. And uh, I think it, I cannot remember. So what do they do? <laughs> a gentleman is never seen to run. You shall advance with me. Ah. So the stack rolls up to this, uh, in this one village and the uh, English gentleman officer on his constitutional walks over with his cane and uh, you can hear fighting in the background. This is not a secure area, but... He's having a walk and he's given his orders, so he's not needed and he's not allowed on the front because his rank is too high. They cannot afford to lose him. So he's walking with his pipe in his mouth. And uh, as the officer in the tank, the commander, asks him why, where they need it or what's the situation. Suddenly this commander hears a massive bang. Um, he's thrown down this hatch into his tank. His entire face is covered in blood. He's freaking out and uh, his crew is freaking out. And the English officer just calmly standing there and with uh, the gunner pops up, he says, uh, yes, sir, he points to this cane to a tower over there. I believe the shot came from over there. It hit, hit the cupola and the shards of the bullet hit the uh, tanker man in the face. So he was perfectly fine, but head wounds bleed terribly so it looked horrible and it felt horrible to him but this english officer did not bat an eyelash despite the knowing there's a sniper there he just calmly pointed the tank gun he was over that building tank made it not be a building anymore (laughs) and uh, then he carried on with his walk yeah (laughs) just another day on the job (laughs) that's
0: what he does where is it all going is is are we just going to keep having wars? It's, um, it's just going to become more technologically no, advanced? Or is the nature of war here going to change entirely?
1: I feel at its core, war will always be men and women shooting at other men and women. But from what I've seen recently, new advances, the way people are instinctively figuring out hang on, this new drone thing is very useful. We can use it to drop things that's how we got aircraft from flying kites with engines to fighters now we've got drones amazon is working on this massive dirigible that they can fill with packages and drones and then use that to automatically deliver packages so i feel that's not too long in the future where at sea you've got uh, carriers with aircraft over land you can have dirigibles and airships with drones on them that can uh, perform combat missions but uh, i also feel that uh, innovation will keep carrying on Um, we will keep finding new ways as we start using drones to shoot down things or bomb things we'll find ways to take out the drones and then of course ways will have to be found to make the drones immune to that make them faster or maybe give them armor find a way to protect the dirigibles from being shot down because if you can shoot down the blimp then no more drones and uh, of course, then they've got a way to make your bullets no longer penetrate the dirigible, so you're back to using old anti-aircraft uh, tactics with bigger, and bigger guns or missiles to shoot down blimps. And then they will find a way to do the, uh, increase the range of drones, so that you don't need the blimps. You've just got very long-range long-range drones. So the old tech that used to be obsolete, and then you found a use for it, and suddenly it's obsolete again. The natural an ebb and flow of, yeah. of war. Uh, you have you have a good
0: strategy. They found a way to counter it. You need new strategy. Hey, we've got some tools around we can reuse. Yeah.
1: It's as they say, weapons will always defeat armor until new armor comes around. But uh, I do feel that what I find interesting locally is that South Africa has a history, despite a lot of people not knowing of, of being incredibly inventive and innovative in not just the field of war, but other areas as well. A lot of people, of course, know that we had the first successful heart transplant here in the Cape, but a lot of modern very high-tech seeming military tech came from here a great example would be uh, in many some airplanes but also many helicopters that are used to uh, attack gunships and such Uh, many people have seen in movies and video games how the pilot of the helicopter just looks at a thing with his visor and then that's a machine gun that automatically aims where he's looking There was invented right here in South Africa. Um, Similarly, people see the United States Marine Corps, they have grenadiers, which used to be a position way back when we had muzzle-loading weapons, you had dedicated grenadiers with large cartoonish bombs with iron shells and little fuse sticking up the top. And uh, they gradually fell out of favor because we had riflemen that could shoot much further than you could throw a grenade. And then with trenches, we figured out. Hang on, we need grenades again because we need small bombs in tight areas. And these days, you've got marines who have what are basically revolver grenade throwers. And that was in. That's this. it's not the striker system although that is a shotgun that looks very similar but it's a system that was invented right here in south africa and they're making it under license the united states army engineer corps uses the same technology we used to make caspers in the middle east they just slapped a giant uh, controllable arm on it with spikes and then they've got something that can resist blasts with reinforced uh, windows they can safely engage bombs If a mine or such happens to go underneath them, sure, they'll need new tires, but the engineers inside will be safe. And South Africa was the first people to pioneer that. Would you say our... um Greatest
0: contribution to the global war front has been? As South
1: Africa these days, I do not actually feel that we are contributing as much anymore as we used to. Why is this? The main reason South Africa used to be so important, beyond the fact that we made some absolutely dauntless soldiers, South African soldiers were some of the best you will ever find anywhere on the battlefield. But I feel that from the politics side, we were also a patsy in terms of the Cold War, where Russia and in a, uh, China they were influencing the groups in Africa uh, in more communist ways. And America, being America, like you no, know, this communism thing just will not do. Absolutely not. So South Africa wound up being a proxy against that, and uh, they were fed some information and some situations really did develop. I'm not going to comment on whether or not that war should have started, I don't think so, but there were arguments on both sides for both sides. And uh, eventually South Africa was very important as a so-called bastion in the third world for democracy and uh, capitalism against the scary red menace. And eventually, The Berlin war fell the year I was born and communism stopped being such a big thing and suddenly South Africa just was not important anymore and uh, served our purpose. Yeah and the same people who used to be up top getting support from other places no longer had that support so inevitably their abhorrent practices fell apart, they fell out of favor they lost and new people came in charge and now we're in the modern situation where we are still very strong South African soldiers do help out in peacekeeping activities not only in Africa but sometimes also abroad but we are not as much as a much a projector of force as we used to be because honestly we need to focus locally more um, and we are indeed focusing locally and trying to fight things such as uh, crime corruption, poverty, inequality which all I feel are much better targets for a war than just whoever happens to live over there.
0: Yes. Has there been any wars that are particularly needless, that have sort of occurred?
1: Most needless wars I can think of off the top of my head in descending order would be the First World War and uh, then the Vietnam War, and Korean War to a lesser extent. Actually, no. Vietnam and the Korean wars, you can put them next to each other. And then lastly, many of the wars in Africa, they were caused by people who are no longer here, um, who drew up boundaries and borders that made no sense to anyone but them at the time. And now we're still suffering from those things. We've got people who historically did not actually get along that well, now being forced to work together because they're living in the same country now. And that leads to friction and conflict that just does not have to happen. But uh, the top war that did not need to happen, I feel, would always be the First World War because it really had no point uh, to, again, quote, old Black Arrow war was not fought that badly since the Viking chief Olaf the hairless ordered 100 helmets with the horns on the inside.
0: (laughs) To you, what really started the First World War and why
1: could that have been avoided? Basically, as I see it, there are a lot of politics involved. Um, there was a lot of undercurrents, things I, I'm not aware about because I'm absolutely horrible at Eastern European history. Um, as far as I'm concerned, those countries change their names too often and the borders too quick for me to keep track of. Yes. Sounds like you, our road names in this country. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, But what it boiled down to is you had one large group of uh, allies who all had agreements together, who had massive armies to support each other in case anyone else starts something. And then, of course, because you have a large group with a massive army and incredible cannon and artillery technology, the other people have to band together and also form a large army and incredible technology just to defend themselves, just in case. The problem was, it inevitably went from just in case to some old man who read a lot of stories in his youth about daring do about officers before his time and heard great adventure stories and uh, well, we do have this large war and those chaps just killed this one politician who has nothing to do with us but that's part of a conflict there we've got a agreement with this country who's right next to that one so we might want to step our alertness and then the other slide like okay so we're involved in this now because someone shot our arch duke so we need to declare war. And uh, everyone else remember that contract you signed that says, if we declare war, you declare war. So here we go. And then the first side, again, oh heck, they're all declaring war. And the one of these people they declared war on is an ally of ours, so we have to declare war. And suddenly what went from just large, ridiculous armies "Quote unquote for defense," eventually developed into. Well, we had to use them eventually, didn't we? With the, um, the
0: call to arms, um, this can be sort of relatable to the potential that's happening at the, U- the Ukraine with um, NATO being on the quite right on the brink of being breached, and there's a lot of terror that's come from that. People fearing the end of time and and such. Um, do you think it's a similar story that?
1: That potentially could come. I feel like many wars before it. Some of it was a conflict that escalated from legitimate grievances on both sides. One person said something A, person B said yes, but also that and we had disagreement. And persons one says no, at like yours I'm not following that, and oh I don't remember saying that, or I never said that and then the conflict escalates and you've got your own people involved and then because there are own people involved other people who happen to have their own, own people just sitting around say, hang on th- th- this needs to not escalate so let's make sure that we let the other side know our people are behind those people you don't get to do anything more than that yeah, and then sure the other it's sense. like Mm, these people are all uh, up in arms against us, we better escalate this thing to make them know that we're not gonna back down, they can't push us around. And uh, eventually you've got a conflict where innocent Ukrainians are dying and uh, innocent Russians are literally being forced into this. I have a friend uh, I knew in school, She used to briefly live in St. Peter, or she lived for a long time in St. Petersburg, and then briefly emigrated back here to Africa, to Namibia, just so that her husband cannot be forced to join the army, because there was a draft going on, but you cannot draft people who happen to be in another country at the time. And uh, the problem was, of course, if you look at the way things are put on the news and on the internet, those people would be reviled by people who don't know any better, just for the fact that they're Russian lovely people um they don't have anything to do with it and they don't have any choice in the matter but just because they're russian they're automatically the bad guy or from the other point of view you've got someone who they're just an innocent immigrant they happen to like borscht they speak funny um, the people think they're Russian because of their accent and they explain no they're Ukrainian immigrants and suddenly they're heroes and oh you're poor people and they don't have any clue what's going on because their family left the Ukraine. They don't have relatives left over there or they have no interest in that war. Um, all they know is what's on the news and what's on the news depends on what channel you're on. I've seen literal screenshots side by side uh, from different news outlets. It's the same exact photo of a missile unexploded jammed through the roof of a vehicle. On the one news channel, it's a Russian unexploded munition launched at a civilian Ukrainian target. In another one, it's Ukrainian munition launched at a Russian site that hit new civilians, and on the third one, it's an Israeli rocket that landed in Palestine. Three
0: v- very different and incredibly um, impactful situations to put out there has become, and uh, you know, it's it's not that it hasn't been here before. An information game, right? Like we we have propaganda, misinformation, access to information, and now everyone's you know on our computers um, looking things up. A lot of people not that um, savvy in doing that itself. So this is becoming quite a problem, um, the,
1: the impact of um, information. Um, And war? I feel the ancient Greeks at the right of it, uh, they had two gods when it came to war. The one was Ares. He was not, as many people think, the god of war. He was, in fact, just the god of fighting and aggression. Um, If you look at the stories about him, he was not a nice chap. In fact, in the story about the Trojan War, which may or may not have been true, I've read conflicting accounts about it, but one of the stories about it was that... uh, goddesses favored one of the soldiers who managed to beat Ares in a fight and Ares was so upset about the fact that a mortal human managed to stab him in the face he ran to Zeus complaining and Zeus was just what were you doing on the battlefield but uh, what the Greeks realized or what made them clever about it they knew the goddess of war was Athena, who was also the goddess of wisdom. War is a, is a mind thing first before it's on the battlefield. The uh, Japanese and the right of it as well, they say you first, and the Chinese as well, you first win the battle and then you go fight it. Uh, if you can convince the other side that they're fighting for a lost cause, they're either not going to fight at all or they're not going to fight nearly as hard. Near and uh, these days, a lot of people are being paid to tell the right stories to the right people. And then people who don't know any better think what they're hearing is the whole unvarnished truth. So they start spreading it, or as humans do, they tack on bits or they leave off bits. And uh, that starts spreading another story. And you've got whole groups of people who wind up fighting because group A knows this happened and that was why it was done. And this is why the other side is bad. And while group 2 is... Yes, but your side did that, there, and this is why they're bad and we're right. And what they're saying, very often even is factually correct, but incomplete. Uh, I once saw a little comic strip uh, very nicely demonstrating it. What you see on a, you see a man running away from someone else, holding a knife and uh, it looks, oh, you can see he's running away from the guy with the knife and someone's filming it. And then in the next panel, it's zoomed in on the camera. And the camera is zoomed in, and what you actually see is a hand with a knife and began running. But the angle makes it look like the man who's being chased is actually the one with the knife doing the chasing. Yes. And that's something that, unfortunately, human leaders in particular are very good at doing. Um, to a win, quote, my favorite author, the thing that's with uh, politicians, uh, it's a fictional country, They say, the moment a politician gets elected over here, we just put them in prison, it saves us time and effort.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Definitely for some politicians, we should have that implemented. And so as as an individual, right, in these times of just information, You know, overload. Um, People inherently are quite easily kind of manipulated and misled unless they take careful efforts to avoid this. A common um, sort of tip someone would give is, you know, do your research. Um, As the technology advances, as wars advance, how do we get this under control as an individual and maybe even more broadly? To, to, to combat this uh, this information war that's happening in wars themselves
1: <laughs> the the problem is that to come back to my earlier comment about groups being either too large or too small, is as people, we are not meant to have such a massive amount of information being thrown at us. We are not capable of caring about so many things at once it's exhausting, it's, uh, many people who will admit to being introverts will tell you, if they've been out all day speaking to a lot of people if they get home they don't want to get out again they've had too many people um, sociologists and psychologists have found that There is a maximum number of people that a single person can effectively care about. And the problem is, most of us don't know that we are meant for more tightly knit communities. Thanks to the internet, the entire planet becomes basically a community. We're involved and informed about things everywhere all at once. And we wind up being absorbed and uh, influenced by things that happen very far away and have no bearing on us, but we find them in. Important, all the same because of what we feel or how we perceive the matter. And we wind up splitting our attention amongst so many things that we don't have any mental fortitude left to start doing research or figuring out what part of what I was just told is true and what was added on, um, what part of what I was just told was left off that should have been there. And uh, I think the best thing we could possibly do, um, to quote the Dalai Lama of all people, our job on this planet is to help each other. And if we cannot help each other, at least don't hurt each other. So if you're sitting there on the internet and you see this meme post about a guy with a gun, and it looks funny to someone and someone else, just starts going yeah but someone with a gun like that can do this much damage it's no need it's not needed to start fighting with that person about whether or not gun rights are a thing you don't need to start a fight on the internet just because you disagree with someone um, in life in general just because you do not agree with someone does not make them your enemy it just means you disagree with them and I think as humans we need to learn again how to disagree peacefully yes Yeah. No. No, it's
0: become almost um, a taboo now, right? You disagree with someone, there must be something wrong with the other person, so or you're, you're in, That offends me Yes, 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 uh, exactly. It's, uh, people are almost scared to, to, to share um, alternative, unpopular, or just um, vastly differing opinions to other people. And so you get these sort of maybe echo chambers of hearing the same things, or people just getting into opinions. Um, And it's sort of become a little bit destructive in how we daily, daily converse, share ideas, and isolating people right in this world as you say that we need to kind of get together and bring humanity and teamwork Um, we're making it really hard with (laughs) this kind of isolation and destructive things
1: I feel it's basically you could almost say although it is stretching the word a bit it's almost a war unto itself this group of people who believe one thing and they feel anyone who does not agree with them it's the old if you're not with us you're against this argument which is ridiculous in most situations and basically, they feel like if you don't agree with them, you must disagree with them. And if you disagree with them, you're attacking them and you must be attacked in turn. Whereas, in fact, it's simply a situation of, okay, so you feel you need to have the right to do this or that or say this. I just could not care less if I tried. Um but the fact that I don't agree with you automatically makes you assume I disagree and I'm against you when really it's just, oh, I'm not influenced by this matter. It's got nothing to do with me. Why should I care? Exactly. Of course, the problem there becomes if you go too far in the other direction, you stop caring about absolutely anything that does not affect you directly. And that leads to people turning a blind eye to horrible things happening. Um, to take back our poor people, and our friends, the Germans, many of them who said, I did not know that was happening. And then after the war and after these things came out, you had terribly sad cases of people who leave behind notes saying, I did actually know, I just didn't do anything. Yes. A villain is
0: not just the person who commits the acts; it's maybe the person who sees the act committed and doesn't
1: stop them. Exactly. All that is needed for evil to triumph is for a good man to stand by and do nothing. Exactly.
0: Is there any um, areas you see um, war coming?
1: feel like the way I've the things I've seen and read about in the past and the uh, things I've inferred from what I've seen happen here and abroad I feel like uh, the current it started in the Middle East where the, a large part of that conflict was in essence a proxy war and when it went poorly uh, America recently pulled out of Afghanistan for example and a lot of things there are going sideways again but, they need a new target. So I feel like the current war in the Ukraine has the potential to escalate um, from a proxy war to a larger proxy war. And then it might accidentally, it almost happened already, where a Ukrainian missile accidentally landed in another neighboring city, uh, country city. Uh, luckily, communication was such that they were able to say, oh, we are very sorry it was a malfunction that was us and the other country was open-minded enough to say okay it was an accident just don't do it again if they had decided not to they could have very easily joined the other side and that could have tipped the balance because now there's more countries on the other side one of ours need to join on this side and that could escalate but on the other hand you've also got a situation in asia that a lot of people aren't aware of where china is trying to make overtures and taking territory. Uh, many people are aware of the so-called One China policy, where as far as they're concerned, countries like Taiwan and uh, the, Tibet do not exist. Um, it's all China. Whereas other ones say, well, I've been to Taiwan, and it's most definitely not China. And uh, they start trying to take contested islands because they insist it's in their territorial waters. Japan and Korea say, no, 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 that's closer to our side. Those are our islands. There's not actually anyone on there on that island, but It's the principle of the thing, and those silly principles, like I always have, could escalate. Uh, All it takes is one unfortunate situation to hit the wrong group of people, which would set off the powder keg and start a war on that end. I hope it doesn't. There are a very, very large number of Chinese people... Nothing good ever happens when China goes to war, um, so I hope for peace, but as they say, see beach you want to pre- uh, peace prepare for war
0: yes the um, w- w- which sort of place you say is the most um, iconic sort of war history? highlight in China has always been on that radar, but
1: like, to you, what do you think? Like, the most, w- what's a very intriguing area? A very intriguing area in terms of war, I would say, of all places is France. A lot of people get stuck on the whole oh, France gave up in the Second World War jokes about white fr- uh, flags being French. What they do not realize is France at that time was a massive world power and had always been one. France has the most successful war history of any country in existence. They've fought just as many places as the british have but often more successfully they've taken on the british and in some cases won, in other cases fought into a standstill yes they've lost now and then but not nearly as often as other countries have and they've also it's also been the site of many massive wars that's when the time came and a lot of people just did not want a second world war i cannot blame them they were rightly tired of fighting um it used to be a thing the French Elan, the willingness to uh, charge and charge again, but as a people eventually you get tired of fighting. Um, before the first, war, the second World War, there was the first World War, there was the Crimean War, there were the Napoleonic Wars, there were the many wars between England and France and parts of each which used to belong to the other. And uh, I think there's no part of that country which hasn't seen war in one form or another. Yes. And um, people have heard of the, the
0: French Special Forces. Uh, they've tactically really um, made themselves stand
1: up. Not just that, but uh, the French Foreign Legion in particular um, is very widely known across the world, um, to the point where there are specific provisions in the rules of war where the French Foreign Legion does not count as a mercenary army, despite it technically kind of being one, because in effect the people in it are from other countries fighting for France. But on the other hand, they're fighting really, really well for France. And uh, there are some really amazing stories about the French Foreign Legion where uh, with a lot less equipment than the other side or less prepared due to circumstances, they still came out on top. There's a case of an American, I think he was a general or an admiral, but I think he was a general, who uh, due to a service he performed for the French Foreign Legion, his men helped him out of a situation. And they gave him a nameless business card with a number on it. And the French general, uh, commander just said, so if, if you're ever in trouble, call this number. And uh, he wound up in a situation, I cannot remember where, I think it was in the Far East. And uh, he was deep in trouble. So, with no other ideas and knowing that his own people, uh, the reinforcements are coming, but they're going to be a well, while, he calls the number and uh, they answer and he explains the situation. And before his own reinforcements could show up, a bunch of friends from legion uh, soldiers showed up to uh, pacify the situation and help his side win.
0: They were like the, the men in black, uh. <laughs> No, I would rather or say they're the, 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 cavalry, the cavalry, the modern yes. cavalry. Yes, so the, the reinforcements you call them.
1: Yeah, yeah, the the people who you look to at dawn on the third day. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You're quite into weapons um do you have any favorites if
1: i had to pick a favorite i say in terms of rifle it would definitely be uh, with apologies to many people the ak-47 the
0: classic the probably the most iconic um rifle <laughs> in general i think
1: it's literally the one thing everyone thinks of when they hear the word assault rifle but uh what I admire about it is the fact that it's effectively idiot-proof. You can give an AK-47 to any mud farm in the middle of nowhere and in just a day they will know how to operate that rep- weapon. You can sure. throw it in dust, it'll shoot. You can freeze it, it'll shoot. You can fill it with mud, it will still shoot might not shoot as accurately, but it shoot. Okay. And uh, my second favorite, of course, would be on the other side of the Iron Curtain, the old FNFAL, here, known here in South Africa as the R1. It's an amazingly effective weapon. It's the perfect weapon for urban warfare. It's accurate, it's powerful, It's well made, it's reliable, as long as you keep it clean. If someone's hiding behind a thin wall, you shoot it through the wall, but it's... It's not idiot-proof. You need to keep it clean and oiled and calibrated, but uh, it's still a beautiful weapon. It looks better than the AK in my opinion, wooden furniture notwithstanding. But my third place is one that not a lot of people know about. It's the current South African sniper rifle or so known as an anti-material rifle. We are the only people on the planet insane enough to use a 20 millimeter sniper rifle. Uh, To put it into context, the very famous 50 cal that the Americans use uh, translates to 12.7 millimeters. This is a 20 millimeter. Back in the Second World War, they put this on armored cars or as a machine cannon in airplanes. That's how large it is. Um, The reason I like it is not because it's a big gun. I mean, I do like big guns, they make very satisfying booms, but the reason I like it is the amazing ingenuity that went into it because you cannot fire a rifle like that it would shatter your shoulder Uh, recoil is a thing and newton was very clever when he said equal and opposite reactions and uh, so what the designer did was he put this thing on basically a miniaturized version of what artillery guns do when that thing fires the whole system moves back on a recoil-absorbing system before that, what's left of the recoil hits your soldier. It's also very modular, you can actually put smaller rifles and chambers, uh, barrels and chambers on it, so you can make of that thing what you want. If your enemy has armored cars and such, go for the big one. If it's a bunch of insurgents, you need accuracy and long range, take it down to a 50 cal, or even the Lapua round, you've got incredible accuracy and range with a lot less recoil than the weapon systems that commonly use that thing have. And that ingenuity is something that I find admirable. Despite the horrible uses you can put it to, I am against the fact that you can use it to kill people. Yeah. Um, I often tell people, if I do get the opportunity and the money at the time, I would buy firearms, but I would not own ammunition. I would like them for the ingenuity, the engineering in them. And then every once in a while, I would just go, I would buy some ammunition, take it to a range, shoot it all, and then go back home. Because I don't need to hunt. I enjoy hunting. I have gone hunting. But if you're not going to eat it, you're not going to shoot it. That's my philosophy to the matter. Yeah. So uh, I would much rather shoot at a target, see what I can do there, um, see how far away I can hit the thing. And uh, as I said, it's, a, it's about the ingenuity and the skill for me. Yes. Uh, killing people is wrong, but a rifle can still be a beautiful thing. Yeah.
0: If you got the right weapons, and um, what, what would, how would you win a war? What, what does win wars? Maybe some good examples, like if you're going into it, this country has done some wrongdoing, you need to defend yourselves, what, what's the approach?
1: This is something I've put a lot of thought into. And I've also played a great many war games that I did very poorly. And the number one thing that wins wars is not a particular weapon. It is, ironically, logistics. The first thing was is always, are your soldiers fed? Have they got ammunition? Can they get their trucks? Do the trucks have gas? Have they got water in the canteens? Can they refill those canteens? Are they getting paid on time? If you do all that, then you've got a good start. After that, uh, the second one is morale, Uh, esprit de corps. Do your people want to fight that war? Uh, Are they okay to be there? Are they motivated? Do they know why they're there? A big problem in the Middle East was a great many soldiers wound up wondering, why am I even here? These people do not want me here. I'm not saving them if the people I'm supposed to be saving aren't interested in my being here. They want me gone in the first place. So if you've got first the logistics and second the will, then you will most likely win that war the problem is of course if your people don't have the will and you don't have the logistics then you're stuck Uh, that is ironically also how south africa was freed from the previous uh, regime it was in a roundabout way a matter of logistics you cannot fight insurgents in the country everywhere you cannot get troops where they need it everywhere because the area is too large you will never have enough troops Even if you have one soldier for every enemy soldier, you cannot get them all where the enemy is. So an army marches on its stomach, so if the army can march and eat and get where it needs to be, you will win. But if it's too large an area, if the army does not want to be marching, they'll start dragging their feet and you will lose. No matter how good your technology, uh, no matter how big the bombs you are dropping from spy planes so far up, that's... By the time you hear them, they've already gone back to base. You won't win because your people don't want to be there, your enemy doesn't want you there, and the civilians in the middle don't want you there either. That being said, if I had to win and fight technology-wise, it would depend entirely on where I am fighting. If I am fighting in a place like Asia, it's one heck of a fight because uh, to quote the princess bride you never fight in russia in the winter you don't fight a land war in asia and you don't go up against Sicilians when they're on the line. Asia is by its nature impossible for people not of there to fight in. We don't know the place, even if we've got the technology as the Americans demonstrated more than once, the best tech in the world don't work if your strategy doesn't work. And unfortunately, no one has yet figured out a strategy there effectively. If you need to fight in Africa, then things like tanks will not work that well however things with wheels will if you can get firepower where needed effectively and quickly then in africa you would win with decent rifles good mobility and a lot of artillery air support is useful but the problem in africa is air support needs a base and bases are very easily to target in turn because there are wide open areas and little things stopping them, uh, the enemy from attacking. Uh, in America, the Americas, in South America, you've got the same issue as Asia. It's a lot of jungle. It's a lot of people who know the area and. The only people who have ever won wars they are the people who live there. Uh, After the Spanish. They left rather forcibly. Yes. Uh, in Europe it's even more mixed up because it depends where. Are you in Eastern Europe, in the steppes? Tanks are great, mechanized infantry are great you in Western Europe tanks are less good because it's a lot of urban areas it's a lot of mixed pike uh, spaces tanks are going to be important to support your infantry but your infantry is gonna win the battle and gonna take, the, uh, take it all the land So, uh, I think what it comes down to is something I actually realized very recently. The idea of one army that would win everywhere does not exist. It depends on what you make it for, and even then you have to make it for that goal. And if you then find yourself somewhere else, the army you've made won't necessarily work
0: there. Yes. Do you have any uh, good accounts of where um, a new weapon being developed has changed the tide of battle?
1: I have an amusing account of a weapon that changed the tide of battle, but not for the reason that its creator sorted it. Yeah. Back in the Anglo-Boer War, in the second one, Maxim guns were the thing. And uh, being a new thing, people experimented. There was a huge amount of experimentation in those days um, um, in the realm of firearms. And one of the things that were made was called the Maxim pom pom, which is effectively a machine cannon. It's a Maxim machine gun that shoots very large rounds. Huge and uh, what happened was the South Africans fought, fighting off the English, they would steal these things and they'd set them up in an ambush and then just use all the ammunition they had for it to decimate the English and then get on the horses and ride off leaving the thing there. No. The British, seeing the massive casualties they're taking, think, hang on, this pom-pom thing is great, we need more of them. So they order more pom poms. The pom poms arrive by ship from England and they realize the pom pom is a horrible thing. The rounds are so large that the thing is prone to jamming. The weather and the dust and such here is such that maintaining it is a pain. The reason that the local been are so good at using it is because of how they use it, not the thing itself. They just steal the thing, find the perfect situation for it, use it, and then leave it because. In another situation, it'll be useless. Although the way they keep effectively using it makes the thing itself look a lot better than it actually was.
0: And how are they effectively using it? Like, what's a common uh, circumstance?
1: Um, To put it mildly, they turned a lot of English soldiers into geography. Just like turning something into history, just spread out over a larger area. Basically, you've got a cannon that's shooting very fast. So, you've got a lot of firepower in a small area really quickly. And for example, if soldiers are marching through a a hilly area, they're by necessity bunched up. If you can set the thing up without them realizing you've got a way to flatten an entire camp. But if you're in a large open field, then you're not going to use it there because the English on horses will just flag you, be able to charge you from the side. Uh, Much like the South Africans did themselves. Mobile infantry, hit and run tactics. But if you've got the situation for a gun like that, clumped up soldiers, Static positions, and you, they don't know you're there. You've got the perfect ambush mission, the ambush weapon of and you just leave it there and you head off again. And uh, any memorable tactics you've seen exercised in the, the field of war? Memorable tactics, the. Mm. it's an interesting one Agincourt of course comes to mind a lot of people think of Agincourt as the battle where the English longbowmen which were uh, they were basically the machine guns of their day they think the English longbowmen won that fight but it was actually clever commanders who won uh, because of battlefield tactics and preparation the French heavy cavalry was unbeatable Um, those heavy knights were known as, they were the equivalent of tanks of the time for a very good reason. A man in a proper suit of armor can take on any other soldier of the time, and he will win if it's a one-on-one fight. So what they did was, the first thing is, they find the right position, give themselves a hill and a woody area on one side that's easy to defend, and then turn the other side into a bog. Redirect the rear by a river, make it muddy ground, horses get stuck in that they cannot charge suddenly the cavalry gets stuck so uh, french noblemen get off their horses on the plate and all wading through the muck their uh, stationary targets suddenly you've got a field day for archers and crossbowmen to just take them all out the french also had their archers, but the archers were in the back they had to advance so by the time they could actually take effect because they were on the lower ground the english had a hill but then, it was too late.
0: And so,
1: look, looking into
0: the future, any new technologies that are going to appear, have started appearing, anything that's coming about or... Like, well, what do you think it's going to look like in um, in 50 years on the battlefield
1: I feel drones are going to be very much more important than even they are now it's an incredible versatile technology for war uh, electronic warfare I feel is going to make a resurgence although not in the way it used to long ago in the time of my dad he would be listening in on enemy radio transmissions you uh, would have code breakers working to decipher what you heard you would need to find the right frequencies and such these days you've got electronic war of a different sort where you're trying to hack the enemy network to turn the things off or make them stop working or turn them against the enemy if possible likewise uh, so-called misinformation campaigns are legitimate weapons of war these days Um, as i mentioned earlier if you can demoralize the enemy then you've won half the fight yes um Another thing that I find particularly interesting, although it's rather more limited in its use, is the advances in the field of railgun and coilgun technology. Better out of a video game, huh? <laughs> You'd think so, but they've already got working versions. The main, main problem now is scaling it down. Because the advantage of something like a railgun, you no longer have massive bags or cans of explosives, throwing projectiles through a barrel and at the other end now you've got a huge bank of capacitors uh, storing up a charge and then just whoosh your ferromagnetic uh, projectile gets launched by a bunch of magnets at incredible speeds and uh, thanks to our friend isaac newton the speed that thing travels at translates into explosive force when it hits and uh, if you've got something like that on a battleship as one uh, navy man pointed that out it's a very very nice thing when you do not have a massive room full of explosives in the middle of your ship yeah. if you hit that the whole thing goes up if you hit a bank of capacitors the worst thing that could happen is a person in the wrong place might get electrocuted when they discharge
0: the only thing on rail guns is that i believe they They take a lot of wear and tear with such a sheer amount of force and energy generated. They take a lot of wear. So I think the current challenge is having ones that can, you know, in war you have to have a lot of. Firing happening, there's lots of targets, and to keep that sustainable sort of combat is a challenge in, in real guns. But the sheer force is something to reckon with.
1: The interesting thing there is it's not actually a new situation. Um, material scientists have been working on making material resist wear for longer than the uh, material scientists have been a thing. Um, you had armorers way back when this guy figured out hey hang on if i use this material that we imported from the middle east it's a lot lot stronger than this bronze we've been using um, and it'll hold an edge and then someone else by accident figure out hang on when i add bones to this metal that i'm forging into a long sword it makes it stronger at the time they thought it was the bones from the animal or the person they're using that infuses their strength into the iron but what is actually happening is they were making steel by accident and uh, from there in modern times you have new materials that you use in barrels for rifles to reduce wear and uh, because as the rifling wears out you lose accuracy and uh, from materials there you've got another set of materials on the components to make them last longer but while still being lighter so that you don't have a five kilo rifle that's weighing down the soldier. Uh, you want lighter bullets that are still very cheap. You want better material for the guns and armor on your tanks. or. You want protection for your armored cars or your Humvees or what have you. So material sciences, uh, while on paper looking very boring in practice is very important. And I feel that that technology specifically will very quickly translate over to just a new branch that figures out, okay, so how can I make this rail not wear out so quickly when I'm sending a million volts through it to guide this little piece of steel that I'm flinging at the enemy at almost the speed of light
0: challenges and innovations of was, um has been known to sp- branch a lot of fields right um, what would what you say on the effect of war on academia?
1: I would think the th- first thing that comes to mind is all Alan Turing uh, a large benefit that war was for technology and uh, academia was the rise of the uh, think tank and also the uh, processing units and uh, computing, Um, many of the advances we have in modern information technology started off as methods of code breaking in the second and possibly even first world war. They started off with mechanical devices and slowly over time started upgrading them. And then suddenly when there's a war on, you need to make these things as effective as possible so that you can detect the enemy codes faster than their own machines can. And uh, from there, you move to highly advanced machines that take up entire rooms. Uh, My dad used to work on a machine that he still used punch cards, where you literally write write an entire program by putting little holes in a piece of cardboard. And you had memory capacity Well, there was no memory. You had processing capacity of a few calculations a second, and now we can do exponentially more than that with little pieces of silicon. Yeah.
0: And um, yeah, as technology develops, it often shrinks down and becomes more and more compact and complex. Do you think this can be the case in war? With your weapons branching hard to see or to even, even the nano walls, who knows? What do you think there?
1: From a weaponry point of view, uh, we've actually recently seen what happens when you try to scale it down, where they went from the old uh, 308, also known as the 7.62 round. They went down to the smaller two to three or 5.56 millimeter round because it's smaller, it's lighter, it goes faster, so it's better against uh, armor, and uh, you can shoot it really quickly without so much recoil. The problem was it's not as lethal. So now you've got the U.S. military moving from 5.56 to 6.5, which is an entirely new round. It's already existed, but they're realizing sometimes you don't want to go too small. Likewise. I feel like you mentioned nanotechnology, that is a very very dangerous field to weaponize because uh, for the same reason we've outlawed germ warfare. We don't want those things to get out of control and it's very easy. In fact, with the way that data works and the fact that transmitting it can easily corrupt it, it's very easy to have what they call in the science fiction circles as a grey goo scenario where something that was meant to do one thing goes out of control and just starts absorbing everything around it or breaking things down that it wasn't supposed to. You mentioned
0: um, the uh, chemical and biological warfare, Um, and we've heard sort of, you know, stories in more recent times of, um, you know, russian sort of gas um to use to poison um s- certain individuals and it's become frowned upon but where's that going um you know we've got technologies that can create viruses like CRISPR. we've got leaps and bounds and all those related fields so
1: from the little i've seen that i can feel is reliable in terms of this seems factual i would say that That technology has never stopped being developed. Once they got the idea to make this stuff, they used it in a few instances, realized, hang on, this stuff is horribly dangerous. Out loud, nobody used this stuff, it's dangerous, we don't want it to get out of hand, we don't want the wrong people to get their hands on it. And also, please don't pay attention to the fact that we're still developing this to make it more deadly. As you mentioned, CRISPR is an offshoot of stuff like that. It's an amazing technology. Uh, I recently read about a case where using CRISPR they found a way to make a certain type of genetic disorder no longer a thing. You could make it so that if you detect in the womb that the baby has this genetic disorder, you can change the specific gene causing them so that they no longer have it. And the benefit there, of course, is if you do this for, if you do it enough times, that genetic disorder will effectively die out because it no longer exists, there are no more carriers. The downside is you have a situation like Ruby where we wind up having an elite class of genetically modified people and I'm certain the moment we find a way of using that to make better soldiers we will and then eventually those of us who weren't modified will be sitting on the sidelines as second class citizens because we just can't run that fast, we just can't play music as well, we're not thinking that fast, we can't reason as uh, efficiently, even our most talented members will not be able to compete at the same level. So it's an amazing In technology, I am really excited about what developments can come from in the future in helping people. But the downsides are also exponentially more dangerous.
0: Yeah, this is the thing about um, technology and innovation, right, is it's got the potential to greatly help society and um, change problems that we never thought we could. Or does the potential to make wars very easily winnable and cause mass destruction.
1: It's as our our friend Einstein said, he does not know what the Third World War will be fought with but the fourth world war will be fought with rocks and sticks. Yes. We are really, we're getting scarily good at killing each other off and uh, I just hope that we never do have another world war. Uh, although I'm thankful that I'm in Africa because we will probably be the last people to get involved Us in South America. But uh, on the other end, I am hopeful because I've seen technology, it's an exoskeleton is what they call it. It's basically a, basically an exoskeleton where they use machines. Machines and servo motors to make soldiers stronger, and let them carry more heavier loads, allow artillerymen to, or by themselves, load heavy rounds into large guns. But what I saw was a video clip of this machine hooked up to a framework to keep it upright, used with a paralyzed lady wearing it, where she is being retaught how to walk because she uh, muscles are incapable of moving herself very efficiently or strongly. So the machine takes up the load and this woman, you can see she's been in a wheelchair for a long time. Her legs are almost not there anymore. She's walking. It's clearly painful because inactive muscles don't like to start being active again. But she's got a massive smile on her face as a physiotherapist is helping her just walk up and down a hallway. Yes. And that gives me hope where we can start making paralyzed people walk people missing limbs can get them back again. There's a lot of potential and it just starts off with a backpack and the thing that goes on your arms and legs and lets you carry a two-ton piece of artillery shell into a chamber.
0: We we should probably wrap up the show, Um, but it's been very, very cool. Um, George, thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure to be here,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Would you have any last things you would like to say to the the listeners?
1: at the risk of being uh, on the nose i would say that war war never changes